This is Dr. Neil Civilla, and I'm your host for the Integrative Veterinarian Podcast, brought to you by the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. My guest for this first episode is Dr. Rick Palmquist. Dr. Palmquist received his DVM from Colorado State University in 1983. He practices small animal integrated medicine in the Los Angeles area. He served as the president of the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association, as the research committee chair, on the ethics committee, and on the editorial committee for the AHVMA as well. He's also a consultant on the Alternative Medicine Board for the Veterinary Information Network. He also has a long history of teaching and publishing in various subject areas of integrated medicine. Please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Palmquist as we talk about his roots, his exposure to integrative veterinary medicine, and where he sees integrative veterinary medicine in the future. Dr. Palmquist, thanks for taking the time and joining me today. My pleasure. So where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in a little town called Greeley, Colorado, which is about 50 miles north of Denver. Yeah. So was veterinary medicine always on the radar for you? Uh, you know, I, I was a kid who liked science, so I always was bouncing around the science thing. I, my dad was a microbiologist, a public health uh, administrator, and uh, he was in head of the, sort of the head of the laboratory at uh, Well County Public Health Department. So I, I actually was kind of raised in a laboratory. <laughs> um, yeah. I sat on a big stool and drove the autoclave for many hours of the day and then spent time at his desk looking at pictures of uh, people with venereal disease. So uh, <laughs> it's no wonder I have a, no wonder I have a warped viewpoint about life. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I think, five years old when I saw my first dark-filled syphilis spirochete. <laughs> and this, the smell of gonorrhea in culture actually reminds me of my dad. So that's pretty weird, right? Right. Oh, that's wild. But, yeah. So, I, but I did. I grew up in the science family. My mom was a public health uh, dental hygienist and a uh, big intensive interest in nutrition. So, those and and raised we raised our own food and did all that kind of stuff. So, uh, a lot of those interests were kind of inculcated into me very early. So, what does a public health dental hygienist do? Uh, just cleans teeth. Uh, I mean, yeah. she cleans teeth and. Dental counsels people. You know, she was a big advocate of fluoride and the drinking water and all that kind of stuff. So, just prevention and and treatment. So she did a lot of mercury work, which unfortunately for me meant that I was born mercury poisoned and nobody knew that. So I had a lot of pathology as a kid that actually tracks back to the sort of embryonic exposure and long term exposure to mercury. Sure, they just. And I think that, our parents didn't know any better, right? Yeah, no, great people. She was valedictorian of her class. She was smart as all get out and really just, a, she was an amazing mom, you know. So where did undergrad take you then? Uh, so I went to actually University of Northern Colorado, um, had an option to go to a couple different universities, but we weren't um, very well healed financially. And that was the local school there that's in Greeley. Um, and I it turned out actually to be a really good thing for me because um, it's a small university, but really, really highly qualified teaching people there. And so I got a, a really amazing sort of background in embryology, which turned out later to be really, really important to me in the work that we did in homotoxicology and sort of deep understanding detoxification and, and coming up with sane detoxification strategies. Um, and also embryology ties us into so many other um, alternative medicine subjects because uh, some of these systems, the way they work and the way they connect, um, 
different body parts to different systems uh, relates to where medications go and, and kind of tie together sort of strange metaphorical things like Chinese medicine and homeopathy and low dose nanotherapies. And, and uh, so, so that was a really good thing for me. University of Northern Colorado, um, I did basically, uh, I think, 12 credits short of four years and three years. And then I got into veterinary school at Colorado State University at the end of the third year there, which was also important for me because I'd have the money. I didn't have the money to go another year of undergrad. So I was really fortunate that I could get in. Uh, ultimately, I ended up graduating without any debt, which was pretty remarkable. So that, That's great. How'd you pull that off? I worked. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I worked for a veterinarian and uh, um, saved all my money because I lived at home. And I was lucky enough to have a grandfather owned a ranch in, in uh, uh, Washington who passed away and gave me $10,000 for my education. So that, that total, all that plus the work actually allowed me to, to pay for for the whole thing. I, I did live in a house with no heat in Colorado for two years. <laughs> that, also, <laughs> that also helped. Um, <clears throat> yeah. In, in retrospect, what a blessing that was, right? To be, to be debt free. Oh yeah. You know, my son's a, a third year student at, in, in veterinary school right now. And you know, the, the amount of loans those kids have coming out is just monumental. Where's he going? He's at UC Davis. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so after vet school, I mean, right into small animal practice, is that what you knew you, where you were headed? Well, uh, yeah, that actually, <laughs> my life's a lot of twists and turns. Yeah. I, I, uh, I wanted to go to vet school because I actually was kind of antisocial and didn't really like people that much. Um, yeah. and I, I think that, uh, actually was part of the mercury symptomology actually, cause I had some brain damage and, and I'm a little bit on the spectrum. And uh, I thought, oh, if I go to veterinary school, you know, I won't have to deal with people, which, as you and I both know, it doesn't turn out to be true. But um, I, I went to veterinary school and uh, and actually found out that I like people. But my target when I went to veterinary school was actually to do food animal medicine. Uh, I worked for a large animal veterinarian and I had a job waiting for me to go back to work on cows and horses and sheep. And I really didn't like pigs. But um but that, just to work in livestock. And then I broke my um, back and dislocated my shoulder um, my uh, sophomore, no, junior. My junior year in veterinary school, I was playing um, flag football, and I tried to tackle a Samoan quarterback, and I threw my <laughs> shoulder out of the socket. I was trying to impress my wife-to-be at that time, and I didn't impress her, but I really wrecked my body in that particular testosterone related activity. <laughs> and so that took me out of, I couldn't hold a horse anymore because if I lifted my left arm up and grabbed onto the horse and they lifted their head, my shoulder luxated. So I ended up having surgery, um, which I had a good response for, but I just couldn't do large animal stuff anymore. Yeah. And uh, so then I switched to doing just cats and I, and I switched my, my emphasis to small animal medicine and then all my electives senior year in small animal medicine and then shifted over and went to work in a cat practice and missed dogs really quickly. And so now I do dogs and cats. Did you guys get married while you were in school? We, yeah, we did actually. Um, we got married our junior year sort of semi secretively <clears throat> because, uh, you know, veterinary school is such a big gossip mill, but, um, and we've been together almost 40 years now. So have you practiced together? Never. <laughs> 
Okay. Actually, I guess that's not true. Actually, we practiced together for about six weeks, and we came home from work one night, and, and my wife was sitting across the table from me, and she said, you know what? It's something I think we need to talk about. It's uh, it's kind of important, and I think we need to decide if we want to be married or work together. And so I chose to be married. Yeah. I wasn't an easy person to work with. I was too helpful. <laughs> So after graduation, where did that, where did you guys head off to? Well, we wanted to work uh, because we didn't want to work together. Yeah. We wanted to work in a town that was big enough that we weren't in competing practices. So we could just keep that whole vibe out of our marriage. And so she came to work in a practice in, uh, in uh, West Los Angeles in Marina del Rey. And um, I went to work in Sherman Oaks um, in a really nice practice uh, with a lot of entertainment people and, and high-tech medicine. I did my first um, heart surgery, I think, two weeks after I graduated from veterinary school there. Really well-equipped place. And at that time, I really thought, oh, I'm going to become a surgeon. And uh, then after a period of time, sort of became evident that you can't cut out cause. So I got disappointed because we couldn't, couldn't get to enough cure with surgery. Like you put ruptured cruciate ligaments back together again and fix slip discs and things like that. But I just really was called more to kind of a deeper approach to medicine. And I also was really interested at dentistry at that time. So Colorado State had the first um, advanced dental procedure laboratory that was taught by Dr. Emily, who is a human dentist, who's kind of the father of veterinary dentistry, and um, did my first root canal in school, did my first root canal in practice like right away. And so I was doing a lot of heavy-duty dental procedures, and we were seeing you know, a reduction in the amount of heart disease and mitral valve dysplasia associated with getting these teeth on these older dogs cleaned. And at that time, nobody thought you could safely anesthetize those dogs. So veterinary dentistry was like... Uh, we chip some tartar off the teeth and, you know, we, we give them some antibiotics and we can't anesthetize those dogs when they're over 10 because they're going to die. We had a lot of war. I actually had a lot of physical disagreements with um, veterinarians, even the practice owners at that time, who were pretty advanced. But they were just like, you're going to kill a dog and you're going to get sued. And, in fact, of course, it was the opposite. You know, we started having these old dogs that their arthritis symptoms got better, their heart valves um, got better, um, the amount of congestive heart failure we were treating is kind of reduced. And so after about a year, year and a half of that, then everybody was really gun-ho for dentistry. And I thought, oh, I'll become a board-certified dentist. At, you know, when at, at that time, there wasn't an option. There was just a special interest in the group. But um, then I kind of lost interest in dentistry because I didn't like how toxic a lot of the materials were that we were putting in the mouth, and I was trying to figure out something better to do. And I wanted to be a partner in that veterinary practice, and after two years, I'd really increased the size of the practice, and I said, I really want a partnership if I'm going to stay. And the, the practice owners were like, that's probably not in the cards. So I left and then did relief work um, for about to two years and finally ended up um, buying this practice in um, Inglewood, California uh, from, a, from a veterinarian who was retiring. And, uh, and then we just, we just took a, an older practice and brought higher tech Western medicine into it. And so we were very successful from the beginning. And the next thing that happened actually was after uh, a couple of years of practicing there, um, I had a client who was, a, a, she was a very delightful, very sweet woman very easy to talk to, but very um, impressed by veterinarians and professionals and very gullible. You know, like if the veterinarian with the stethoscope around his neck said it, she would do it. And uh, a, a mutual friend came into the practice and said, did you hear what happened? She moved to New York and she got connected to this crazy 
um, quack veterinarian out there who's treating her dog's cancer without chemotherapy. And I just got furious. I was just so mad. Um, I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't sleep at night. It was like living next to somebody who is like sexually abusing their infant. You know, you, like, you know what's going on and you don't know what to do. And it's just like, I was, I was sort of incensed about the whole thing. And uh, ended up ended up calling him finally and saying, hey, I want to come out and see your practice. And my intent was just to document what he was doing and get his license revoked. So I called him and we talked. And, uh, and I went out to see his practice and then I saw a whole series of miracles. I mean, literally like a, a dog who'd been declared uh, paralyzed and hopeless, a German Shepherd, by Dr. De La Hunta, who is the guy who wrote the textbook that I studied in veterinary school. And... Uh, they did a little acupuncture on this dog, and 20 minutes later, this paralyzed dog that was carried in on a stretcher, like, got up and walked across her and put his head in the owner's lap. And I fainted. I couldn't process what I saw, you know. So then I, I then I sort of gradually shifted my purpose from putting him out of business and getting him out of the profession to realizing that there was something that none of us were taught in veterinary school. And, in fact, we'd been taught the opposite, that the material was primitive and dangerous and then only people who didn't know how to do high-tech medicine would ever even consider doing that they had to fail at western medicine before they would get interested in such a strange and crazy environment and that really bothered me because my parents were scientists and they told me look um you know science is, you have to follow what you see you know and if what you see doesn't agree with what you think then you have to continue to follow what you see until you can understand the phenomenon that you're looking at and i just realized that i had said some really bad things about acupuncturists to herbalists thinking that they were really quacks when in fact they were super smart people and way ahead of their time and certainly a lot braver than i ever was because i wouldn't have gone against the you know, the, the auspices of what everybody was saying at that point. I wouldn't have been brave enough to do it if I didn't love this lady and love her dog enough to go out and say, all right, that's it. I have to get this bad guy. So let, let me get the timeline right. So you're you're probably, what, five, six years past graduation when this, ha when this great awakening occurs? Yeah, about. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, and I, I have to interject because this, your recounting of this, uh, is captured beautifully in the movie, uh, Dog Doc. <laughs> it is, yeah. And it's going to premiere uh, across the United States in March, actually. Yeah, so, and I've had a chance funny. to see it, and I loved the movie. And, of course, your interview, your part of that is is pretty much spot on from what you just told us. But um, what did you think of the movie? Oh, I loved it. And Cindy Meal is a client and a friend, and her daughter's also a movie producer and is also a client and a friend. So I've known them both for quite a few years. And it's been fun, actually, watching that project take shape. Originally, it was going to be a film about integrative medicine. And so we, we filmed a lot of stuff oh, five or six years ago at my office. And Cindy is, is, is Dr. Marty's client. So she was intending actually to film a few things at different offices and then to use his office as kind of the, the bulk. And then after a period of time, she just decided to do the story about him. And, uh, and, and it, I think the film is great. I, I think she did a really nice job of narrowing it down so the scope's not so big and, and telling a story about one particular person's journey. So, yeah, it's, it, for people who are interested in, in this stuff, I think it's a, it's a beautiful film. I loved it. I was invited as part of a documentary film festival to see the film with a group of people, and and they all loved it. And of course, I sat in the back, as is my way, and 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 cried, of course. But um, 
I think everybody cries at that film. I, yeah. I think it's really interesting. I, I think almost everybody, I, I haven't met anyone who didn't cry, at least have like one tear, because it's just powerful stuff. It's extremely powerful. And, and going away from it, um, when I think about the film, the thing that really makes me smile is that uh, here's this focus on this, this world-renowned integrated practice. And you know, with editing and everything, the way they choose to tell the story. I mean, I see one acupuncture needle in the whole film. So what I consider, you know, when I look at my practice and what I do or what uh, the holistic veterinarians that I know, I mean, it doesn't resemble anything like that. And I think that's just beautiful that, you know, they're, that they're running a, a practice up there that is integrative and looks completely different from what, you know, just the breadth of our, our little corner of the profession is great. Oh, but Neil, you know, it's, it's so, it's such a uh, integrative medicine, holistic medicine, whatever words you want to use to describe actually using nature to help life live better. You know, that kind of medicine is so vast um, that, you know, I, I don't think any one of us is capable of grasping the whole thing. I, I, I think one of the neat things about what we're seeing with integrative medicine is this movement towards community, towards like what I call a circle of healing where you have love and a pet in the middle, and then you have a, a, a an arrangement of a team of guardians and caregivers and um, energy workers and, and the best medical professionals that veterinary medicine has to offer that are doing what they do best to help that patient to some point that we call better, you know, yeah. it's not always cure. Like, gosh, I had a, I had a dog this last week and I, I'm the hair standing up on my arm still about this case because um, two really nice guys brought this dog in and, and the dog's their kid. You know, they love this dog and they have a life requirement to leave town. You know, so this is on Friday morning on Tuesday, they have to leave town and this dog, their, their um, elderly dog is paralyzed. And um, we did one pulsed electromagnetic therapy for five minutes on this dog. And at two o'clock, the dog walked up and stood up and walked out the front door. Wow. And, and, you know, you've seen that with acupuncture because these things work in similar ways. You know, they increase blood flow, they affect, um, effect um, stem cell activity. And, but some of this healing is so quick that it's just, it, it, it boggles the mind. So this case with Dr. Marty, here's this dog paralyzed, brought in like some biblical scene, you know, like brought in on a, on a stretcher into this little exam room and dropped on the floor. And he's describing acupuncture to me. And I have needle phobia because basically I had mercury. And when I got my first vaccination, when the nurse walked in the room, my body told me if they stuck that in you, you're going to die. And I almost did. Um, and no one knew at the time that I had like near lethal levels of mercury. So getting a vaccine with mercury was not a good thing for my brain or my heart or my kidneys or any of that stuff. And I had terrible reactions to it. Um, but so in comes this dog paralyzed. Marty's sticking needles in there and talking to me about needles. And I'm trying not to get freaked out by, you know, inch and a half long acupuncture needles being stuck in the spine on this dog. And the next thing I know, he's pulling out the needles and the dog is standing up and walking across. I, my, my mind could not even encompass what I saw happen. And, uh, and, and that's how this was for me because we've just started using more PMF uh, therapy in our practice. And I have an acupuncturist and um, I, we use a ton of light and we do a lot of other kinds of work um, on these pain and, and neurology cases. But this PMF treatment, we just started playing with it. And bam, here's this dog. Um, manufactures this response. And, and this is on the backside of, of uh, um, uh, 
a, a ferret, which I don't treat ferrets, but I have a client who has a ferret that has an adrenal tumor that was supposed to die in, in like six weeks. And they said, would you do what you do for cancer on our ferret? And I said, I don't know really anything about ferrets. And they said, well, you know about energy. Would you just do what you do on the ferret and see? And I said, yeah, but I can't charge you for it because I don't know anything about ferrets. But we treated this ferret and it ended up living, it's two years since we treated it. Wow. And now that the cancer's advanced, but I mean, it's supposed to be dead in six weeks. So two years over six weeks is a pretty good response, you know? Oh, yeah. So our goal was not to get rid of the cancer. It was to slow down the rate of growth and turn the cancer into a chronic disease, which we've done. So now the problem is that the ferret, his spine goes down, her spine goes down to about the kidney level and then turns off at about the same angle as a peace line sign. And, sh and she can't walk. She's got paralysis in her back legs. And we put her on this PMF machine for five minutes and she literally straightened her spine completely, straightened her spine, walked off the pad and took a massive poop on the floor of the exam room. <laughs> and then she, and she's walking, she's, her legs are up, she's walking and she's still walking. You know, now this is like three weeks later, she's still walking. She's got cancer everywhere. I don't know how long she's going to live, but, um, you know, she's taking her herbs and she's doing her stuff. And what was going to be death from paralysis now postponed, I guess now she'll die from cancer. And I always tell my clients, my favorite thing is I don't like my cancer patients to die from cancer. I want them to die from arthritis, but this is kind of a tie, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. So it's crazy. So after this, uh, incident at Smith Ridge, do you, so what happens when you get home? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I'm so fortunate to be married to like probably one of the most amazing, perfect partners for me in the entire world, because we actually, um, I'm very one subject. I pretty much read thousands and thousands of papers every year. And uh, uh, my life is very much focused on integrative medicine and research and coming up with different treatments. So when I get home, um, my wife usually says, how was your day? And I go, it's good. And I say, how was your day? And she says, it was good. And then we eat something and I go and study and she goes and does her things. And, and a couple times a week, we get together for a long periods of time with that. Yeah. But we've been married for almost 40 years. That's that's what works for us. So I used to scuba dive a lot when I was younger. We used to do uh, that. I, I do a lot of walking in the forest and I write a lot of poetry, but I'm a pretty individual kind of guy. Yeah. And that can be a frustrating thing maritally because I, I I'm in my space. How long have you been writing? How long have I been writing? Yeah, for the, like I mean, this, I start, the poetry, for instance. Well, I wrote a little poetry when I was in high school. I got interested a little bit in honors English. And then and then after that, I sort of lost interest in it. But then um, I had a pretty serious medical a attack and ultimately ended up with my heart sort of semi-stopping for a couple of minutes and having an Ascension experience. And when I came back, I started writing poetry really seriously. I think I wrote 600 and 60 poems the first year after that event. Um, and then um, I usually write one or two a day. Now it's slowed down a little bit. I write a couple a week. Um, but yeah, I, it, ever since that particular event, I I saw some things and um, I processed them and, and I meet people and I see things and I'm an intuitive. So sometimes I receive information that I don't know what it is or whose it is, but I'll write a poem about what the subject is. I got interested in sexual trafficking that way. I ended up meeting a whole bunch of people who were involved in trafficking or sexual abuse or family sexual abuse in a really short period of time. And I'd been re kind of receiving a lot of 
depressed thoughts and crazy thoughts that didn't match my life. And I couldn't figure out what it was. So I started writing down the poems about that before the people started showing up actually. So that's, um, that's crazy stuff. Yeah. Do you, um, do you feel like that if we could call it narrative medicine, part of what you're doing, um, do you feel like that's missing from our industry? I mean, I feel like, uh, that, that sort of appreciation of the humanities is important and gets pushed to the side, of course, during well, our training. Well, look, you know, I think nature is pretty smart and nature gave us two sides to our brain. I don't think that nature intends for us to use just one side. Otherwise, it would have just given us one side. So, you know, I, I think it's a really... I think it's really, I'm really fascinated right now by this whole need to fight and desire to find a tribe or a team to join, to then have war with another tribe or team, because I think we're all here for a much bigger purpose. And obviously I started feeling that after I had this ascension sort of event. Um, But there was a, a moment where I was given some choices and I actually chose to come back and, and be a witness to love. Cause I think love is, is more important than people credit it. You know, we, we write poetry about love and we, we desire love and, um, but we talk about it in a much more, um, metaphorical way instead of as a physical thing. And I, I think one of the biggest changes that's happened to me in the last decade has been actually this understanding that love is a real thing. I mean, it's a substance every much as real as air or water. And just because it's hard for us to put in a bottle and study doesn't mean that it's not real any more than Chinese saying qi flows through channels sounds strange. So Western medicine denies it until finally we understand that energy does flow through channels and that the fascia have decided information exchange networks that are built in that just so happen to go right where the Chinese say the meridians ran. So um, I, I think it's really important. And if we were going to talk about stuff like, like, you know, what do we, like, what do, I, what do we know? Right. I mean, the thing that I know after uh, almost 40 years of clinical practice is the body can heal, you know, and that, that doesn't always seem like a big statement, but if we're talking about Western medicine, we're only interested in a diagnosis and managing that diagnosis. And we don't even define management as a resolution of the problem in most cases. I mean, you know what I mean when I say that it's like you have a strep throat. And so we've given you a a medicine and your strep throat is gone and you don't have a strep infection in your throat anymore, but you still have all the toxins from the strep throat and you have damage to your heart as a result of that. And you have damage to your intestinal tract from the antibiotics and you're far from cured. You're not, you're not, in optimal health when you've cured your strep throat, you know, and, and that's just an example of something that we talk about classically curing, but I, the vast majority of things that we diagnose in Western medicine, especially in, in chronicity, you know, in, in aging patients, there's no cure at all. We're just, we're not asking to cure. We're only asking to find something to obviate symptoms or to allow people to live more comfortably. And I think we really need to focus our intellect and our affection on finding things that actually allow people to live better. And even though those are not always like uh, patentable, um, and certainly love is one of those things. I don't, we can't put USP love up for sale in the market. I don't think it would work, you know, yeah. but, but having a practice that's love and truth centered builds a community that leans more towards um, finding what I call better, which is just improved conditions, whether those are really truly cures or not. And then we can argue about 
for 10 years. What, what do you mean by cure? Like no more disease or do you mean that symptom is gone? Or do you mean the person has a better outlook about the condition? But we know that the body can heal and we know that there are certain things that really are critical to the body staying healthy. Things like um, the right microbial intake at the right time, the food, you know, the food being more than just uh, biochemistry, but actually being um, active in a whole bunch of other systems in the body, whether we're talking about epigenetics or um, how the, which genome, like epigenetics, you say, well, we're talking about the host DNA and how the food affects the host DNA, but what about how the food affects the microbiome in your mouth or in your brain or in your heart? You know, we're just barely cracking those windows right now. And those are all community-based things. They're all about relationship. You know, they're all about how does this bacteria live there? What does it do that's good for the body? What does the body do that's good for the bacteria? How does that bacteria react with the microbiome internally and with the host DNA internally? And then what does it do as far as like the cross communication between the mitochondria and the microbiome and that those subjects like blow your mind. And, and then, Oh my God, in the process of all that, there's biophotons that are generated that are flowing from cell to cell and are exchanging information that we know God only know how well that does. And then we find out that cells are FM broadcasters and they're sending out energy like crazy. And what's, what's that doing? You know? So if we're only looking at like what pill can a patient swallow, our medicine's going to be so much different than if we look at like what's life really doing? Like what's nature really accomplishing by building these things that look like separate entities, but putting them in really specific places to do really specific things. So I don't know. I hope that didn't, we didn't lose all the listeners on that, but no, no, it's, it's just all, it's just all connected. Yep. There's a lot to learn. Yeah. And it's, and it's fun learning it. Yes. <laughs> Yes. So, uh, what advice, if if any, have you given your son? Oh, you know, I stopped giving my kids advice a long time ago. I think it's better for them to see things and choose and feel things and and have an understanding of of that information that it is um, to to tell them what to do. I I tell them to 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 look for love and look for truth and follow what they find to wherever it leads them. And I, I still think that's best. I think everything that's alive has this creational love and this creational um, intent in it. And if we can allow those things to align and if we're open to how they want to align things rather than how our teacher or our parents or our significant others think things should be aligned, I think our, our world's take on a completely different view and life becomes a different approach. It's not how can I fight um, economic barriers and obtain income, you know, but how can I really serve? How can I really take my talents and exchange those for things of value to end up um, building a community that's healthier and, 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 and surviving better than it was before I came. Um, and I, I don't think there's a way, I don't think there's a way. I think, each person sort of has a route to take. And I think that's really smart. And I find that in my practice. If I try and fix animals, I don't fix very many. If I just go into the room and say, like, how can we make things better? And then we start the conversation. It's really remarkable the ways that things go. And you're an acupuncturist. So, you know, like at first you practice the way you're taught, like you have this problem, you stick these five needles in. And then the body starts to talk to you and you start going like that point wants a needle and you put a needle in there and somebody else goes, how'd you know that? And you're like, you just do, you just talk to the body and the body talks back and how 
each of us sees or feels that conversation is different. So you know, you can't, I can't tell somebody, well, talk until the room seems brighter because that won't work for them. Um, but after they treat some patients and handle some bodies, and I think love and touch plays a lot of that. So if you love your patient first and you touch them and you sit with them and then see where the conversation goes, um, I think that's a, a lot of times a better route. Now, if it's an emergency medicine thing and the dog's bleeding or not breathing, obviously we're going to practice our ABCs and do those things because those are necessary to keep them alive and living so we can have a conversation with them. But most chronic diseases is, is not that. Most chronic diseases changing um, the way that we see things and the way that we make things so that the future becomes better. It's about consequences of creation more than it is about, um, you know, how much you got paid. I think that's a great place to stop. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. No problem. Thank you for having it me. Was, it was great to talk to you. Always good, Neil. All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the College of Integrative Veterinary Therapies. ZIVT provides world-leading education in natural medicine, including three accredited postgraduate qualifications, industry-recognized certifications, and a wide range of evidence-based courses and webinars delivered by qualified and experienced practitioners. By bridging cutting-edge science and tradition, CIVT helps you to expand your treatment options to tackle your most challenging cases. And whether you're a veterinarian, veterinary technician or nurse, animal health professional, or someone who wants to learn more, they have the right course for you. Investigate their offerings at civtedu.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, we'd appreciate if you'd take the time to tell a friend and to give us a favorable rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for your support. We'll see you next time.